Hey everybody and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latofsky. And we're going to be attempting to record two episodes in a row today, which you'll be hearing as separate episodes, so there's no point in my even telling you. Woo, it's a marathon! So we watched a bunch of stuff a while back as we've been doing lately and then didn't get around to recording, so it starts my anxiety off because right away I think about all the things I wanted to say at the time and forgot. So whatever it is, it is. But this episode is a is one of our usual twofers where we found two episodes, uh, two movies with some thematic connections. And it started from one that a number of people on Twitter and elsewhere have been telling me to catch up with for years. And it's one that I don't know why I never got around to it. And we also probably own it about like a dozen times over <laughs> because it's in the public domain and therefore, it's one of the horror titles that inevitably turns up on every... Well, now people don't know these so much. This is our own kind of like time capsule of things mm -hmm. we remember. Remember, you used to go to like to Walmart and you'd find... And we'd look in the bins and the bins would always have like the, the 47,000 horror movies on one DVD. And it would we always... We own have, a lot of those discs. <laughs> yeah, we really got to get back to watching some of that crap because it's fun. And it would always have like the obvious ones because whatever they could grab, they'd grab. So a really bad print of Night of the Living Dead... Last Man on Earth. House on Haunted Hill. Dementia. Uh, Coppola's Dementia. Although House on Haunted Hill is not public domain, is it? No. Yeah, but no. it would show up on these oh, anyway. Uh, uh, why would I forget this? All right. Well, anyway. <laughs> Let's go back to up. our first episode where we talked about House on Haunted <laughs> Hill. Anyway, um, and lots of other stuff, obviously, that's like real low rent. But Messiah of Evil would often turn up and it's a 1973 film that sometimes uh circulated as dead people and that's right to the point i think and i did include it with andy and i did include it in zombie mania way back when it's one of those movies that skirts the line having elements of both zombie storytelling and vampire storytelling and it's very kind of murky about the nature of what's going on and as we discovered delving into it far murkier than we even imagined but also fascinating so then we looked for and house on haunted hill is in the public domain i just looked it up while you were uh, given a of recap course, yeah. Before. yeah how did we forget that I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know anyway um so messiah of evil and then we went looking for something to mix with it and it was interesting because, as we'll get to, Messiah of Evil is set in like a seaside town and there's weird shenanigans going on and everybody seems to be involved in it except our point of view character. If you look at it from just that perspective, it pairs very nicely with another horror movie about a seaside town where everybody seems to be involved in bizarre shenanigans except for our point of view character. And that's Dead and Buried from 1981 which I'd been wanting you to see for a long time mm -hmm. because I'd seen it probably only all the way through once ever when Andy and I did Zombie Mania, but it was one of the movies we genuinely enjoyed as a happy discovery when we did the book. I'd never seen it up to that point. That would have been around 2004 or 5. And uh, it, was, it was so nice to watch. And as I talked about at the time in the book and elsewhere... It's basically a very nice little EC Comics Twilight Zone style exercise, mm -hmm. but that also comes with its own cons too, which we'll talk about. But anyway, that wound up being our pair. So for this episode, it's Messiah of Evil and Dead and Buried, both movies that take place in very dreary, nicely atmospheric, gray seaside towns, 
which is something we already like quite a bit because it also gives us elements of the fog and the mm -hmm. mood of that. So every time you think maybe it'd be nice to live in a seaside town, you just pop one of these in, give it a watch and think, well, maybe not. Maybe not so much. Yeah. So let's start off with Messiah of Evil. It wasn't a nightmare, but they don't believe me. They nod and make little notes in my file. Not far from here, there's a small town on the coast. They used to call it New Bethlehem, but they changed the name to Point Doom after the moon turned blood red. Like I said, it wound up in the public domain. It did not, for I think pretty obvious reasons once you see it, and I'm not meaning this to be negative in any way, it's... it's it's a very opaque film, and we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. But for very obvious reasons, it did not benefit from the public domain status in the way that, say, Night of the Living Dead did, be, and never achieved a level of notoriety or fame through that, uh, probably because it's so strange and, and kind of difficult to, to penetrate what's going on. Strange is really an understatement. It's, yeah. it's surreal. It's bizarre. That's part of its charm, actually. Yeah, I mean, I say that lovingly. I, I love Surreal. We both enjoyed it, I think, quite a mm -hmm. bit. There's yeah. there's reasons why it's not the greatest thing in the world, but we both really wound up kind of enjoying the ride. I, I My immediate reaction afterward, too, was I could definitely imagine keeping this in the rotation in the years to come as something you put on around Halloween time just for the atmosphere of it. I mean, the music yeah. alone is extraordinary. Like, if you were just to put this on and not really watch it, but just have the soundscape playing, you'd still get an unbelievable experience out of it. It just sounds really cool. Now, here's some interesting stuff about it. So, basically, a Messiah of Evil, quick thing. And also, as our usual thing, giving you our, our warning right now, mm -hmm. full spoilers for both of these films. And, by the way, we're really serious about this because I'm warning you now that even though we haven't gotten to it yet, Dead and Buried is a movie that functions like a Twilight Zone episode or an EC comic with a twist. It has a big revelation at the end. We're going to be talking about everything. And basically, once you know that, it ruins the first experience of the movie. So if you haven't seen Dead and Buried yet and you want to experience it the way you should then watch it first because we're going to talk about all of it and there's no other way around it. Messiah of Evil is just a bizarre journey. So I think you yeah. could probably listen to this and still watch still it, watch to be it. honest. Yeah, I think you're right. So in this one, we have a woman who comes to a very strange town called Point Doom, California, D-U-M-E, which seems, Doom, of course, has the nice double-sounded meaning to it anyway. And she's looking for her father, who's an artist, and he needs letters, and it sounds like he had like descended into madness. Or there's a, One of the things about this movie, by the way, is there's a very strong Lovecraftian component to it, especially the notion of seaside town, people all falling victim to some kind of transformative thing physically and mentally and cult-wise and madness, and an artist, another Lovecraft favorite, someone who's like capturing something in art and looking beyond into another world. So in investigating her father's disappearance and or death, comes to this town, uh, meets another guy who's come to town supposedly to uh, look into, uh, what was he, he's like looking for like the father's works or he's also... Well, partially the father's works because I guess he's a known painter, 
but also it sounds like he's sort of like an anthropologist. He's sort of like basically like a bohemian freelance anthropologist. He just has enough money uh, and or like cachet to just kind of wander around and collect stories. Ah, uh, the 70s. I know, right? And he has three piece suits, but he always keeps the jacket off. So he's got like, the waistcoat. And he has two women with him at all times, like one older, one younger, just in case, I guess. And he's also part of our way in to discover that everybody in this town appears to be part of a cult waiting for the return of the dark stranger. Um, As one does. And there's a, so there's a lot of Lovecraft stuff. Is this stranger going to be arriving from the sea? Did he already arrive from the sea? And then, of course, the other aspect of it is that they are very zombie vampire like they feed on raw meat they feed on blood they seem to capture other people and infect them with the same thing and this movie follows her journey to try to discover what's going on and uh just so you know a couple interesting connections from a geeky point of view is that our star mariana hill is the main one in High Plains Drifter, which is one of my favorite westerns ever, which is basically a horror western where Clint Eastwood comes back as the ghost of a marshal who was killed, if you look at it that way. And this kind of does have a western feel to oh, it. Oh, yeah. At a lot of times. Sure. So, I mean, it kind of is a nice match. That's true. And other things she was involved in include being Fredo's wife in Godfather Part Two, which we didn't, you can't recognize her easily mm -hmm. from that. So she did a lot of things, a lot of television. Like she, she's of that generation that if you were around, and oh yes, that's right. And for Star Trek fans, she's Helen Noel from Dagger of the Mind. So uh, there are a lot of things about this that I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. And uh, Messiah of Evil is written and directed by the married couple of Gloria Katz and Willard, and I never know how to say his name, but I'm going to say Hike, H-U-Y-C-K. And uh, geek fans will recognize their names immediately because they were deeply associated with George Lucas during the early days of Star Wars. They wrote the screenplays for American Graffiti, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. They did uncredited work on Star Wars. And, of course, they, they pretty much ended their career uh, working on Howard the Duck, which we've talked about before. We have. And I love that movie far more than it deserves. And... Uh, I just think it's underrated. But anyway, they did Messiah of Evil, the same people. I also think that's sort of, that's the tell right off the bat that there is potential in the material that's there. This is one of those movies that was filmed. There's a lot of segments all put together, but they never really finished it. They right. didn't quite get around to finish filming everything they wanted or editing it all together. And eventually the material was taken and assembled in a way that made it a coherent enough movie that it could get a release. And I tend to look at movies like this from the point of view of, I'm going to judge this movie based on the potential that I think it has if it were fully realized the way they wanted to do it. Because it's a I charitable think way of doing a it. lot of that is outside of their control. It's also worth noting that Michael Greer, who plays Tom, the guy who's the visiting... Uh, the roving anthropologist. Gentleman anthropologist. <laughs> uh, 
He appears in the film also in the flashbacks as the Dark Stranger. And it seems very clear that there feels like there's meant to be some other big revelation coming about Tom. Yeah. But it never comes. Mm -mm. And he, he just kind of drowns and disappears into the sea. Yeah. And then famously in interviews at the time, contemporary interviews, he told people he was playing the son of Satan in a movie. And none of that, that's not in there. Mm -hmm. So it, it gives me the feeling like one of the things that seems like an obvious thread was going to be Tom's the new incarnation of the Dark Strangers. But they never do any of that. So mm -hmm. in a way, maybe you can even argue... If you appreciate this film for its dreamlike surreal quality, of which it has that, you know, all over. For sure. Then the ambiguity helps. It would almost ruin that then to suddenly nail down any of this. So you either get the ambiguous Messiah of Evil that you're either going to really love or just think, eh, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. um, or there would have been the fully realized film, which we're never going to see. Yeah. So I think the fact that they didn't, have the ability to assemble it or even per perhaps finish filming it really it is what makes if you look at the overall plot as an arc it's incoherent there are inconsistencies it's not really clear like what exactly is happening sometimes and mm -hmm. how it relates to the plot as a whole or even sort of where or how or why it's ending where it does but in the middle of all that, you get these really amazing scenes and like these little vignettes that come together. And there's really some amazing cinematography. There is just some really great structure to like individual segments of the movie that don't necessarily add up to be a well-structured movie. But I think the little pieces that you watch are enjoyable. Yeah, and well worth the experience. Mm -hmm. And it definitely feels like a movie that's been informed by or partially inspired by aspects, at least, of Night of the Living Dead. The concluding segment that involves a lot of the town chasing down, um, um, was it, what's her name? I'm having a, by the way, I got a new prescription and now <laughs> I literally can't tell how far I'm supposed to be away from the screen or anything. Arletty? Uh, and, uh, and Tom. And there's like scenes of them at the windows of her father's like weird beachfront artist's getaway that look almost like church windows. And they're like the standard zombie black mm -hmm. shadows against white as they come crashing through and like jumping in. It's a fantastic image. And I think we both agree there are two segments that are worth your time, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. The first one is the supermarket scene. Oh, for sure. Which is also fascinating in that, like Romero and like several other filmmakers of the time, it's an interesting inversion of expectations in a world that is almost entirely in the dark and in shadow. The horror suddenly comes in with a scene that is so harshly lit because you're in a supermarket and she basically gets chased by a group of the, uh, whatever they are, the, t the town vampires, yeah, who are eating the meat. It's so creepy and uncomfortable. Um even better than that, I think. Oh, for sure. The scene of the movie is one in which one of Tom's girlfriends, who seems like like a young girl, like the, the, the kind of character you see in a lot of Hollywood movies too, like she's hitchhiked to LA and looking for, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, and she's with Tom. She goes to the local movie theater at night 
smart alone and uh and sits and watches sammy davis jr western by the way which is uh just fascinating in its own right um and uh slowly as she's sitting there basically center in the in the theater we start to see from behind her as the doors open everybody in town is slowly filtering in and sitting behind her until there's literally a horde of people just quietly sitting behind her and it's gonna have a payoff if you've ever seen scream 2 you also know there's there's another thematic connection there Also, I think really one of the coolest thing about that scene, or I mean a scene, it's like that segment, is that you as the audience at this point know way more than the characters do about what's going on in this town. And so she buys her ticket, she goes in, the minute she goes in, they turn off the marquee outside it's so, like they got the person right? yeah they yeah. got one yeah. they're good right so it's like you as the audience know oh something's about to go down and like she walks in and there's no ticket taker and she's able to just pick up a bag of popcorn from behind the snack stand and just start eating it mm-hmm. and she watches the whole movie they sit with her as she watches the whole movie and it's kind of a, an amazing sort of exercise in like patience i guess and it kind of feeds into the feeling that you start to get in the film that there's also something very much like a a wolf pack about them that even though it's more zombie vampire zompire than like werewolf there are still elements of it being related more to nighttime, more about the moon. To the hunt. To the hunt, that they're roving in packs, that they're working together to trap her. They work together to trap Tom's other girlfriend in the grocery store I where she like can't get out because the doors are locked. When you look it up and you see a lot of people writing about it, you tend to see people just go to... And again, great Night of Living Dead connection. You tend to see a lot of people just refer to them as ghouls mm. because it's easier. It's like once you use that, you're in no man's land. It's like, I don't know quite... I always say like zompire because it's that hybrid thing of there's elements of a zombie, there's elements of a vampire, but they're really kind of nondescript. They're like... The thing that you start to glean from the movie is that this community is damned in some fashion. Mm -hmm. And they have what amounts to, in modern terms, an infection of being damned, of evil, that manifests itself in very artful ways, like the blood tears. Which, by the way, didn't you remember that the, I mean, I always remember that one, but I think you remembered from, I think we watched it once a long time ago, like Grapes of Death. Mm-hmm. There's the French zombie movie has that element where it spreads and the blood tears. There's also the fact that they can't feel pain. Yeah. And um, it's it's sort of in this weird area. So they're damned. They're waiting like a cult for the for the return of the dark stranger. 
And there's also the strong implication by the end of the film that this could break out of this town and spread everywhere. Mm -hmm. That like we're on the cusp of an end of the world. Again, like a Lovecraftian kind of thing. And it ends as Lovecraftian stories often do, or like she's institutionalized at the end and saying, oh, they left me here because they want me to keep telling the story until the day comes. And it's like everybody thinks she's crazy, but she's carrying it with her also. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very interesting pattern of storytelling that you can kind of point to in all kinds of films. Like, for example, we recently were talking about maybe uh, doing a rewatch of The Happening because it's been a while since we've watched it. But it occurs to me that there are also the same type of story beats in a movie like that where something starts and it's in a small area it feels like it starts to spread it hits its peak its crescendo then it all dies down and you've got your survivors of it who just sort of try to figure out okay what was the warning that nature's trying to tell us here but then by the end of the movie you're sort of realizing oh my god it's about to happen again somewhere else and it kind of parallels that feeling of like okay she's been left to tell you about it but it's gonna happen again it occurs to me that there's another connection for us that i thought of dead and buried as like the twilight zone one because mm -hmm. the way it's structured there's kind of a twilight zone element to this too because it's done as a flashback it starts and ends with her talking to us yeah from the institution and it reminds me of let's say lloyd bachner i'm getting that right in to serve man where mm -hmm. we're getting like he's already on the ship and he's like yeah here's how it all happened now i'm waiting to be eaten and it's like that same structure that like it's already over you know what john carpenter would have called an end of the world kind of movie and speaking of which if there is anything of this movie that inspired people and i found other articles that explored this i can't remember now i think there were some people that even said there were uh, there's evidence of it, and I can't remember now. I should have looked this up. But when we were watching it, remember we said how Lynchian the whole thing was? Very much so. And just to step back for a second, I I love a lot of Twin Peaks. Not all of it. I feel like a lot of things. It didn't always stick the landing. The revival, I thought, was a massive disappointment. I like the original series. I like the movie. And there are elements of Twin Peaks that I like a lot. I don't like almost anything else Lynch has ever done. I never became a David Lynch fan, but I like some things of that. In that, though, people often used to ask me, like, well, what actually scares you? Or do you like things that are scary? And I say, things don't really scare me. Some of the stuff that has actually made me the most scared and the most uncomfortable are shots from Twin Peaks from David Lynch. Mm. And it's specifically a couple shots specifically from the movie, from Firewalk With Me. And there are these things that Lynch does, like he'll do a thing where you just enter a room and the room already has people arrayed around the corners of the room, like a conversation that's been going on for three hours. But it's weird. Like you feel like <laughs> you've, you feel like you've stepped into someone else's place and you're not supposed to be there. Yeah. And another thing he'll often do is. Put the camera somewhere where you have a lot of negative space or a large empty area or a door that isn't quite open yet. And then just wait for a really uncomfortable period of time to get you used to the space. And then suddenly something really uncomfortable appears, whether it's Bob or, or someone else. 
that makes you feel like the wait that looked totally normal nothing weird should be there and then suddenly and both of those things are in this mm-hmm. there's the scene where one of our favorites whom we just watched it again from house on haunted hill alicia cook who spent most of his career playing drunks appears in this as a vagrant and a drunk who is in the hotel room with tom and his girlfriends when our main girl shows up and she comes in on an on a conversation they're having where the drunk cook's character is telling them the story of the town that scene is straight out of david lynch kind of stuff and then cook comes to the door in another scene and it's sort of like this large uh frame with a lot of empty space and he's just kind of looking around the door wild-eyed and you don't know what to expect and i thought that's a bob shot from twin peaks and I can't remember if we found actual evidence. I think we did. But it, a lot of people seem to think, well, clearly this movie looks like it had some kind of impact mm-hmm. on Lynch. Also, that whole scene and structure, and granted, it's sort of, it's not uncommon to have a character in a film, especially a folk horror type film, who's like the town drunk or like the town crazy who's going to tell you all about the town. Sure. But it gives me the same feel as well that you get in Halloween 3 when you get, like, the amazing little jump scare of the town drunk, like, being mm-hmm. like, that a bottle? I see a bottle. It looks heavy. And, like, then telling Tom Atkins all about mm-hmm. the history of the town. I got one thing to say. It's the last Halloween for that lousy factory of his. Yeah. And it, it has that same kind of feel, including like Alicia Cook, like cornering our main character, Arletty, like cornering her yeah, underneath a stairwell, kind of yeah. like at a motel, mm-hmm. just to basically tell her like, you know, you, you can't, you can't bury him. You can't bury him. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's sort of like, she's looking at him like, I just got here. So it's like, I don't understand what you're trying to do here. Yeah. I'm just trying to find my dad. But, you know, he's the one who's sort of your Ralph. Like, you know. It's got a death curse. You're all doomed. (laughs) And also it's that neat inversion, isn't it really, of the, the, the trope of the drunken town, whether it's Cook or Ralph or, you know, Halloween 3 guy. It's like in a town of, like, ostensibly normal people the drunk that's clearly the crazy impaired person is actually the most aware and smartest person there Mm -hmm. because they're going to tell you what the truth is what the real thing is where like the alcohol almost becomes like a metaphor for the alcohol is actually what's keeping them sane because it keeps them out of it you know so you see that a lot of horror stories of the they kind of spoof it a bit in um cabin in the woods yeah where you've right. got marty who's just smoking so much weed that it's oh i thought you were going the other way because they have the harbinger in that too oh that's is, true uh... we got both our tropes here we got yeah. the harbinger in that whose job is to just be yeah. like the creepy guy but who... apparently he really believes it yeah, like he's, he's really into it they don't want to talk to him on the phone the phone nearly derailed the invocation with this insolence the ancient ones see everything and they will not be <laughs> I like that. Um, But yeah, but then you also have one of the characters who's like smoking so much weed that it interferes with all the chemicals they're trying to pump in to like manipulate them. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the alcoholics are like, they're actually kind of protecting themselves. Yeah. Right. 
But one of the other things too, the other vibes I get from this is a very Omega Man vibe. Oh, absolutely. And um, it's right in the zone. It's yeah. Only a couple years different. Especially, basically, you realize by the time you get like, I don't know, about like three quarters of the way into the movie and you're getting into your big climax and our two main characters are separated they're in two different places so like tom's running around in town trying to figure out what to do or letty's back at the house trying to figure out what to do and tom encounters somebody else who's also been like running for her life and like hiding in a doorway Mm -hmm. you know she was with her husband they got separated oh right right and then he looks at her and basically tells her it's too late for you and she like looks in the reflection and realizes she's got blood tears yeah one of the cops like turns immediately immediately his own partner yeah like two cops show up you know on the main street very much like a western Mm. very like laws coming into town and they're both fine they jump out of the car and then one of them goes after the other and you realize it's instantaneous he Mm -hmm. just turned and you get that feeling as well from omega man that yes some people you have a gradual progression you start to see where things are going you get the signs and then other people it's like one minute they're fine the next minute they're gone like lisa like lisa and also there's the component of they're kind of they're also like a cult Mm-hmm. you know that there's a belonging that comes yeah. with the infection so i mean some yeah. of that too might just be a very 70s vibe well here's the interesting thing about that because absolutely and you can look at a lot of movies in a certain window and and put a lot of elements together mm-hmm. um and we've talked about a lot of them already by this point and the more we delve into stuff and the more i revisit things the more i realize how much i really love the aesthetic of the early 70s stuff it's just a great moment of honesty in movie making too. It's interesting because Kim Newman, one of the foremost like car critics out there and a writer, um, very into Dracula stuff and vampires, but like he's one of the ones quoted on the Wikipedia page for this quite a bit. But what I found interesting was they mentioned something I've certainly come across before. They refer to it as the American nightmare. It's one of the labels that's often been slapped on an entire run of horror movies that, Again, like a lot of these things is murky, but ostensibly falls somewhere around Vietnam mm-hmm. and like uh, Martin Luther King and, and JFK, a little after JFK, more like Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Vietnam and, and the, the riots, and then goes roughly to around Dawn of the Dead is called The American Nightmare. In fact, a lot of people use Night and Dawn as the bookends. Mm. And the idea is there's this window where the horror of this particular type is looking at the American nightmare, the disintegration of every of the post-war nuclear family, the destruction of everything that we thought was like the future hope of America, suburban, you know, struck. And so you look at all these movies, and this one has a lot of that. The supermarket is now a place of terror and death. Mm-hmm. The movie theater where we all gather to see things is a place of terror and death. And like you said, Omega Man is a lot like that, too. You know, it's like one man fighting in his own house, but the entire city's against him. And the reporter that was once our source of, you know, information is now the cult leader. So it's like, that's the American nightmare. So like it, all these movies fit in that kind of zone. Mm-hmm. And then it wraps up around Dawn of the Dead, where obviously now the malls are open and everybody's going to the mall. And, you know, so it, it makes a lot of sense that, that these fit together. And I don't know why it took me so long before. Well, we say this a lot. I don't know why it took me so long to see this, but 
I mean, I don't know why it took us so long to see the Wicker Man either. It's yeah. like, there's just a lot There's a out lot there. <laughs> there's a lot. Um, but this was certainly worth watching. And I think that I would definitely recommend people view it. It's on Shudder right now. I don't, I mean, it's probably a lot of places because <laughs> it's public domain, but the print we watched on Shudder looked good. Well, that's the thing. With public domain stuff, at the very least... Make your choices based on where you're likely to see something really nice. This Mm -hmm. one has been given a good treatment now, finally. After years of probably, I never saw it on the other ones yet. I'd be curious. We'll we'll pop in one of our 85 different multi-discs. It probably looks really, really muddy and terrible in those, so avoid that. But I think we would both say definitely watch this at least once. You may even, I'll go so far as to say you may even find one of your all-time favorites from now on. Because it depends on what you're sensibilities are as far as atmosphere and Mm -hmm. uh, this has a lot crank up the volume they're coming here they're waiting at the edge of the city they're peering around buildings at night and they're waiting they're waiting for you and they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream And for our second film this episode, we're taking a look at another seaside town that's embroiled in lots of, uh, let's say, shenanigans. Shenanigans. And it's dead and buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. Potter's Bluff. A nice place to visit. But you wouldn't want to die there. I have uh, I wrote about it quite a bit in Zombie Mania way back when. I never really revisited it since, so I was looking forward to it. There have been times where we've looked for things to watch, and I've brought this up. I figured one day we'll get to this because it's worth it. And um, it's fascinating, too, because... Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm actually on the Wikipedia page for Dead and Buried. <laughs> there, there are a few of the movies that are in Zombie Mania that I'm, I'm very proud that I, I at least get quoted about uh, some of the stuff. The quote from Zombie Mania that appears on the Wikipedia page says that Dead and Buried is another fine homage to the EC comic style of horror with a story that also echo, echoes the structure of a classic Rod Serling Twilight Zone episode. The film is a late night treat that works best with the lights off and no foreknowledge of what's to come, which again... That still holds. Yeah, all of that, exactly. And to give you a little background, in Dead and Buried, we're at another crazy town. This one called Potter's Bluff, which also feels like it's meant to be a sly and dark uh, reference to It's a Wonderful Life, because Potter is the main villain, Mm. the rich guy who runs the whole town. It's also Um, a much more run-down looking seaside town than yeah. the one we're at in like messiah of evil like messiah like, of evil has a jc penny yeah 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 no it doesn't it's not like it really isn't like a seaside town like in dead and buried is that's a fisherman's village kind of place yeah yeah and uh our main uh character is james farentino who if you're people of a certain age that would be me um <laughs> Ferentino popped up in some things. For me, the thing I'll always remember him from is he was in one of my favorite time travel movies growing up, Final Countdown, with Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen, where a aircraft carrier goes back in time to Pearl Harbor, and uh, he was in it as like whatever they are, the the first officer. And yeah, but anyway, I, I I love that movie. So he's the sheriff in town, 
There is the guy who runs the mortuary and serves as the local coroner, Jack Albertson from Willy Wonka, in his final ever film role, and he's amazing to watch in this, I believe. Especially, he's a delight. He is, especially if you're, you know, someone who grew up with Willy Wonka. It's fascinating to watch him in this and know this was his last performance, too. And there are a lot of other people in this that are, it's quite a cast. Um, also in it as the Sheriff Farentino's wife is Melody Anderson, who again, people of a certain age, we remember her mainly from Flash Gordon, but a number of other things. And uh, Robert Englund making one of his early pre-Freddy appearances as one of the townspeople. And Stan Winston, one of the geniuses of effects, uh, doing some early work here that eventually leads him into all the amazing things he's going to do from the Alien series and beyond. And, of course, interestingly enough, this movie is also written by Dan O'Bannon, who worked on Alien and Return of the Living Dead and Life Force and so many other things. This is a moment in time, and it's all the more fascinating to so many of us who are horror fans who know of it, that Dead and Buried has never been put on lists or noted mm. with the same degree of respect and awareness as other movies have been because it has so many of these connections and in this movie a series of strange deaths is taking place that starts leading the sheriff down an increasingly bizarre path that almost suggests to him that perhaps people are coming back from the dead but surely that can't be happening right and if so what does our mortuary guy and coroner william dobbs have to do with it and what's going on in this town where people keep turning up again after they've supposedly died? And it's melancholy and fog enshrouded and also very atmospheric. And it all leads up to a powerful twist ending uh, that only works once, um, which is why I say you've got to have seen it already because we're going to talk about it. And I will say I did call it. I paused the movie about halfway through and I told you what I thought was going to happen. And uh, that's pretty much what happened. So pat myself on the back. But I've also, you know, seen a lot of Twilight Zone and a lot of sort of sci-fi from like the 50s. And I think it has almost like a horror setting with a very sci-fi vibe yes. to it. And it really feels like, among other things, it's a deliberate homage to things like the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you could come up with a half a dozen other ones. And yeah. it is a zombie movie, but in a very unique way. And of course, what winds up happening, here we are. You know, I gave you plenty of warning this time. <laughs> uh, is that Dobbs is the center of all of it. And it turns out through completely unknown means, but presumably involving black magic of some kind. Mm -hmm. He's basically been keeping an entire town of corpses operating for an indeterminate period of time as his own personal project including himself just for funsies and and conceives it as an art project basically he sees what he does as uh, uh, a mortician as art creating like if you think about you know touching up a body like kirsten does to drop that gorgeous if it it only take a little bit to push her that much further into the <laughs> darkness and she would be dobbs do you do any of the uh Embalming. Oh my god, no. Oh god. I just do the hair and makeup on the deceased. And like his idea evidently was, why can't I go further and actually create the illusion of life? And basically what they all are is independently operating puppets. 
mm-hmm. that he keeps touching up. The One of the things I always liked about it that's truly kind of disturbing, though, is that what becomes clear by the end, because there's some weird inconsistencies where while the sheriff's investigating some of the deaths, some people in town seem to help him from time to time or know things, but then don't. It's clear that Dobbs is able to revive them to a level of awareness that enables them to function like they once were when they were alive, but apparently also enough, too, that they sometimes start to figure it out and he kind of has to rein them back in Mm -hmm. and reset them, which is really creepy and uncomfortable because it means that the real people are like their souls or minds or whatever are trapped inside these shells and they can be in there, but he keeps them suppressed and probably the most independent thinker in town which he appears to want to be that way, is the sheriff himself. Mm-hmm. And the big twist is that the sheriff himself is also dead, that his wife was involved. Melody Anderson's character is, in fact, what Dobbs considers his masterpiece because she's so independent. And he apparently likes the cat and mouse game with the sheriff, which also means they've probably done this same thing many times before Mm -hmm. and had their sort of bond and villain moment at the end. And then he has to reset him again yeah, and let him go out and try to like, he almost likes the idea of let's see if he'll figure it out this time. Right. I mean, I think really what makes this particularly interesting is that you as the viewer, you know, five minutes into the movie that the townsfolk are killing people. Like, they just tell you that right off the bat. Yeah, that's the opening of the film. That's the opening of the film, is that this photographer comes to town, he's going to take some seaside photos, and then, like, there's a pretty girl, and he starts taking her picture, and he gets so focused on her that doesn't realize he's being surrounded by people, and they brutally murder him. I mean, they, like, viciously beat him, they set him on fire, They make it look like a car crash by like hiding the body. He doesn't actually die. So then they got to go to the hospital and finish the job. They don't. And you don't know an A to what. Yeah. You know, like like that part you don't know yet. Like why. Right. So you get this feeling like, oh, is this like a small town cult kind of thing? They seem to be obsessed with cameras and taking photographs of him. Like, all of them taking pictures. Right. One of the weird quirky parts is that they're always there taking photos. And then, of course, it all makes sense at the end when you realize Dobbs wants photos of what they look like so that he can touch them back up again Mm -hmm. later. And it's also clear he's been adding people because there's, like, the family that comes into town, the the, the couple and their kid. God help you if you just accidentally pass through town. Because if you do, he's going to add you to his collection of people. You know what else? I just thought of this. Yeah. Um, I'd have to. Well, I don't need to. I mean, anybody listening can look this up. We we, we know what we're talking about if we know this one. <laughs> I suddenly realized this is also very similar. I can't believe I didn't think of this before. The Twilight Zone episode with Cecil Kellaway, where the astronauts land and the entire place is a big diorama of dead people mm-hmm. where he poses them. Yes. And then he's going to pose them too, and they're going to stay there. And they don't. And that whole thing, that's very like this, except for the part that in this, he's actually like figured out a way to allow them to function and, Correct. and move. 
but it's very similar of like a guy an old guy curating a collection of corpses mm-hmm. who he's set up into his own community i can't remember what that one's called but that twilight zone in particular is is very much this yeah it's also got a sort of house of wax feel yeah. oh, to ab- it absolutely especially with the makeup design they came up with which basically makes everybody look like they're peeling and cracking like they're wax figures mm-hmm. right yeah. It's like it sort of takes the elements of. We were gonna do House of Wax. We uh, still can maybe. do yeah. House of Wax. Stay we'll tuned, have... everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, it's got elements of that feeling of like collecting people, mm-hmm. and then it merges it together with the like sci-fi element of like body snatchers. Yeah. And it kind of puts the two of them together of like, okay, what if? the house of wax people all walked around the town which again to bring up halloween 3 is sort of what you get there as well except it's with androids and not with snatched bodies yeah he's like recreated the look of people without having actual people and kind of populated a little town with them in order to get his work done so it's kind of a cool combination of all of that as well as this feeling of like satanic panic and like Mm -hmm. small town cult and black magic and all of that you know he finds a book on black magic like in the house and his wife's like yeah i was gonna teach the kids about that he's like the kids she's like an elementary school teacher and she's like yeah and then he goes by the school and she's teaching them all about black magic and actually i don't know what you thought but when you see her teaching the kids you think to yourself she's the kind of teacher you would really have wanted to have she actually <laughs> if you're makes, like us yeah i mean she makes it fun and she seems like wow she actually is get, making it all fun for the kids until you get to the end of the movie and you realize a hundred percent of the people in this town are dead intentionally so and brought back to life and then you realize that entire school is full of dead children. And what we see the boy who's the son of the couple that came into town in that yeah. one sequence. Yes. And he also makes a point when you when you find out sort of how this process happens is that we don't really know whether it's integral to the actual black magic of it or if it's part of the mortician's desire to get to really rebuild people with his artistry. But the whole crux of it is that their deaths have to be violent in order for him to bring them back. And I forgot, I thought you were heading for the other part that I'd Mm. forgotten too, which is their hearts. Mm. Their hearts are not there. Yeah. He has to keep their hearts in the coffins or like kept in a box. And we hear this entire thing in her lesson because she teaches the kids the voodoo lesson. Right. And basically what I was also telling you after too is in an era by 1981 where from a zombie genre perspective, Romero's reanimated corpses had virtually taken over as the de facto version of the quote unquote zombie. It was always refreshing, particularly after that, to find a movie that actually dealt with more voodoo-like versions of it Mm. and really when you hear what her lesson is dobbs is a voodoo master who is manipulating all of the zombies like puppets yeah and using voodoo magic except that it also introduces the whole other interesting thing of he's a white guy so he's like appropriated like the power and the culture of like the haitian tradition 
and he is using it in this dark, twisted way to create his own town of puppets. But it's fascinating that the voodoo stuff is in there. The violence, too, having the violence be a part of it. It's like from my perspective, it seems like he's just added that in because he wants a challenge to reconstruct them. And well, it's you, no fun if it's easy, then, I right? guess. Yeah. But yeah. you only see the violence happen to adults. But, like, that's a school building full of, like, I don't know, 100 kids, yeah. you know? Like, every, every townsfolk's child. And the implication is that all of those kids were also violently murdered. It's also uh, worth noting that I mentioned Stan Winston's effects. This is one of those movies similar to Halloween, not Halloween 3, or Fog, and a, and a few others of the era where because of studio or distributor or previews or whatever other reasons uh, had additional effects violence added mm. after the fact in order to beef up the gore aspects for the R rating, which was seen as dollar signs for a horror movie, particularly then. And so several sequences were added in, including the scene where the doctor is killed um, and also the scene that is uh, unusual for an American film, but definitely makes sense coming in 1981 after a slew of Italian horror movies where you have the uh, needle to the eye sequence with the photographer in the hospital. And most people apparently, I only found this out after the fact, most people apparently who grew up having seen Dead and Buried never forgot the hospital eye scene. And I can understand why. I can't take the eyeball stuff. Yeah. I mean, when we watch something Italian, you have to warn me every time before it's about to be eye trauma because I can't I will say it. as those go, it's a really well done version of it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting too that because of that and so many other reasons, this movie officially is one of the video nasties. Uh, it was actually on the second list. This was one of the ones that was not prosecuted. Uh, but it was on the second of the two original lists of the 72 of the video nasties. So, um, which in a way also may explain, I mean, the thing is there are a lot of them on that list that still went on to have quite a history and, and cult status, but mm. dead and buried, you know, just kind of faded away. And it has such a weird, surreal poster. And I remember that poster on like clamshell video boxes too. I mean, I think maybe one of the reasons that it didn't, take off or hasn't taken off is the unique aspect of the twist like that interesting twist also makes the film in a way less interesting to re-watch a lot absolutely i mean of the two in this episode i could easily see revisiting messiah of evil mm -hmm. as an atmospheric experience and even though dead and buried has atmosphere because and remember i was saying earlier about how messiah evil almost might benefit from the fact that it was never finished yeah. and it has its ambiguity i think that because dead and buried is in fact actually a very specific procedural with an ending that explains everything for the most part explains everything you know to the extent that it will enough <laughs> and gives you a conclusion may work against it in this case because yeah. once you've been through it I don't know how much of, although, you know, again, I'm sure there are people listening. If you're a fan, if you're a fan of anything you revisit, or there are plenty of things we're fans of that, like, we know where it's going, but we watch anyway. But if you come at it later, maybe. Yeah. I would say it's harder to feel like you can go back. Well, also because the atmosphere of Dead and Buried is so heavy. 
I mean, the whole very, yeah. viewing experience is very heavy. Everything is gray. It is dreary. Like the movie actually just kind of feels damp. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, a moist movie. It's that's what I just said. <laughs> yeah. So it's like watching it is not exactly like a feel good experience. No. I mean, not, no. not that other horror movies necessarily are either, but there are plenty of movies where it's sort of a twist as to who the killer is in a slasher or something like that. But I would still find those movies rewatchable mm-hmm. and I could still go see them again. This, I think, kind of made itself not as rewatchable by its own, like, quality storytelling in a weird way. So it's like they really set a mood and they really gave it an interesting twist. And in doing so, just make you feel, like, sad and exhausted and say, okay, that was an interesting experience. I also don't want to necessarily hinge all of this on throwing an actor under the bus, but going over this again, it occurs to me that one could argue that another aspect here is that James Farantino isn't necessarily a totally charismatic or sympathetic lead Mm -hmm. in all this. Now, part of it is functional, like he's supposed to be, as it turns out, someone who's got his own, he's problematic. And and the story wants him to be problematic. You know, he's, he's... Seems like a dangerous guy in his own right and has issues with his marriage. And that all seems to actually be part of the story. But what's interesting is Farentino had a career. He's one of those guys that like I always knew was there. And I know him from Final Countdown. But he's one of those ones that's also fascinating to me in that if you asked me, I would never have been able to tell you another few things he was in. Mm-hmm. He's just been there. He did like a, a ton of television, especially in the 70s. But what's interesting is he was married four times, charged with stalking his former girlfriend, Tina Sinatra, Frank's youngest kid. (laughs) What kind of life are you leading when you decide to try to go after the Sinatra family in any respect? If you're stalking a Sinatra, like a restraining order, what kind of life choices have you made? A restraining order was issued against him. He was arrested in British Columbia in 1991 after customs intercepted a package of cocaine being sent to his hotel room. It's all on his Wikipedia page. Um, And in 2010, he was arrested on suspicion of misdemeanor battery following a citizen's arrest of the actor in his own house where he was taken to the Los Angeles police. Um, Sounds like a guy with a lot of issues. And that kind of comes across in his performances. He died in 2012. He was 73. And, like, had a long career. But it's interesting to me. He's just one of those guys that, for me, was always there in the background, mm. TV shows. But, you know, he's he's kind of off-putting, I guess. So maybe that's part of it, too. Would, it, would Dead and Buried have been more interesting with an actor in it that you could sympathize with? I never feel like I can really sympathize with that guy. Yeah. And since it all hinges on you finding out he's one of them, and the sort of pathos of, oh, oh, wow, he's really also, it's like, yeah, but I don't care what happens to him. Mm. So there's that too. Yeah. I mean, I'm also now getting very strong Nick Cage shouting how to get burned energy <laughs> from the whole thing. Maybe that's because we just watched that. And that clip's coming now. How to get burned. How to get burned. I, how to get burned. How to get burned. I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and R.L.T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatofsky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Messiah of Evil, 1973, and Dead and Buried, 1981. You know, Dodge, sometimes you make me sick. Ghouls in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. Done this in twenty years. <laughs>